Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash TJH. This independent learning activity is funded by Merck Canada. When we look at some of the guidelines we have, and in Canada, this has largely been delineated by the IMDC risk groups when selecting first-line therapy. For fable risk patients, preferred options include combination treatments such as pembrolizumab and exitinib, nivolumab and cabozantinib, or pembrolizumab and lenvatinib. For patients with intermediate or poor risk disease, and these are patients with at least one IMDC risk factor or more, Again, preferred options are the combinations we've mentioned, also including ipilimumab and nivolumab, which is approved in patients with intermediate or poor risk disease. When we look at these advancements, you know, certainly this has uh, evolved over time. I wonder, Dr. Soulier, um, how do you think this has really impacted on survival for our patients? This is an important metric. As you can see uh, here before the advent of targeted therapy, the median survival of those patients with metastatic disease was less than a year. With the advent of DGFR-TKIs, uh, we had a median survival that went up to about two years. And now with the, both the advent of DGFR-TKIs and immunotherapy, we can see that a great majority of patients can enjoy at least a survival of, of more than three and a half years. So it has evolved quite significantly over the last 15 years. And, and that's a great a real take-home point, I think, the advancements with combinations. Let's dive into some of the details around this and really towards the end of this year, all the updates we've seen throughout the last few Congresses. So the first trial we can briefly highlight is a CLEAR study, and this was evaluating pembrolizumab and lenvatinib against sunitinib. We've seen now four-year efficacy update results. As a reminder, this was a phase three trial looking at lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab and this really showed the combination improved the primary endpoint of PFS, progression-free survival, overall survival and response rates, secondary endpoints were also improved. Now, there is some granularity needed by IMDC risk groups. And so what we see is the patients with intermediate and poor risk disease, again, these are the majority in our clinic, uh, significant improvement in PFS, and again, a median overall survival as you saw in previous slides approaching the four-year mark, which previously would not have been expected for these patients with simply monotherapy as the first option alone. The favorable risk patients still happen to have a better response rate and progression-free survival, which for patients may be an important endpoint. Um, median overall survival has still at last follow-up not shown a significant difference in terms of hazard ratio and something we might discuss uh, later on, but for short-term endpoints, uh, these patients appear to be benefiting from the combination treatment. That's not the only uh, IOTKI regimen, Dr. Soulier. Perhaps you can take us through the Keynote 426 trial. Yeah, thank you. Keynote 426 was actually the first trial reporting uh, the results of a TKI plus immunotherapy in the context of MRCC. And the five-year results were presented earlier this year at ASCO. We were able to demonstrate not only early on, but at every evolution of the, the report of this trial, that both PFS and OS were in favor of the combination of axitinib plus pembrolizumab compared to sunitinib. Uh, there are slight differences in terms of the favorable risk and the intermittent and poor risk patients. 
but I must stress though that 426 was not intended to look at the subgroups this way. It was looking at the overall population, so an intent to treat uh, analysis of the overall population. But we can see basically that the intermediate and poor risk are uh, gaining more of the advantage of the combination compared to sunitinib. Yeah, so that's an important point. So all of these IOTKI trials were largely looking at all IMDC risk groups, and Checkmate 9ER was no different. This trial did show that the combination of nivolumab plus cabozantinib, importantly at a 40 milligram starting dose, did show superiority over sunitinib for important endpoints. Progression-free survival was improved. Importantly, overall survival was improved. And again, um, really much of the similar theme that the patients that appear to benefit the most in terms of short-term endpoints, PFS, and in survival were these intermediate and poor risk patients using the combination. The favorable risk patients still found benefit in response and PFS, and you know, really does remain to be seen about the long-term outcomes for overall survival. So we have an entirely other bucket of pure immune checkpoint inhibition uh, as a doublet with nivolumab and ipilimumab. Maybe Dr. Sulia, you can take us through the Checkmate 214, one of the first trials we had in RCC and their recent five-year updates. So here you see the overall results for the intent to treat population with basically no difference for quite a few months compared to sunitinib in terms of the progression-free survival. But we can see over time that there is a population that is deriving and a good progression-free survival over time and is lasting. And this was translated into an advantage into overall survival as well. If we look at the subgroups, so specifically looking at the intermediate and poor risk for which this trial was basically designed, we can see that there was a reduction in terms of progression of 27% and in terms of survival, uh, the reduction in risk of death is 32%. And that was sustained over time and remains for those with the intermediate and poor risk patients, which is probably a bit different from what we saw in terms of the TKI plus uh, IO, uh, for which the advantage in terms of overall survival seems to be lessening over time. The population of the favorable risk don't seem to derive an advantage, at least in terms of the progression of the survival, which you see here is less than what we have with sunitinib. But over time, we see that overall survival does not seem to be detrimental with the use of double IO compared to sunitinib. But still, it remains that, as was mentioned early on by Dr. Lalani, uh, we don't have a recommendation for favorable risk patients to be uh, treated with IOIO. And we know IOTKIs help patients. Could there be an IOIO plus TKI option? And that's really what was studied in the COSMIC 313, a phase three randomized double-blind trial of nivolumab plus ipilimumab and cabozantinib versus the doublet IO plus placebo in first-line patients, importantly restricted to intermediate or poor-risk disease. I think as we saw for the overall population, progression-free survival was improved and this was the initial publication showing that the hazard ratio was 0.73. The poor risk patients, which one would think would perhaps do quite well as well with using three drugs, given the biology of their disease, this was not really seen. Um, no difference in PFS and perhaps numerically applied improvement with the doublet. Um, so more to learn with this regimen, still pending a more mature overall survival update. I think when we look at the data, there's lots of things to take away. Nephrectomy rates, you know, how many patients are uh, really coming with de novo stage four disease and still getting a cytoreductive nephrectomy, that number vacillates a little bit across trials. 
And then importantly, patients do want to know things like response. And I would say, perhaps from an oncologist and a patient perspective, the risk of primary progression, which is uh, getting, uh, importantly, very low as we roll out these uh, IO and TKI doublets particularly. So I think, you know, really all these endpoints are important that we can bring to the clinic to help our patients make decisions. Now, uh, part of the cost of doing business is side effects. And so Dr. Soulier, maybe you can take us through and have your take on some of the adverse events when we look at the doublets IOIO or IOTKI in this setting. So there are probably differences in terms of the safety that we see uh, with either IOIO or IOTKI. So IOIO will lead to uh, obviously immune adverse events, but it will lead to a significant number of patients will need to be treated with high dose steroids for periods of more than six weeks. IOTKI will lead to differences in terms of the events that are happening. In the context of axifembril, there's more hepatotoxicity specifically in that category of patients with LAN, PAM, uh, probably a bit more fatigue in that context, or more proteinuria as well. There are also differences in toxicities with uh, lenvastinib and cabozansinib that also, also have been reported. Yeah, I mean, selecting next-line treatment becomes very uh, busy as well in a setting where the first-line options have evolved. And so in general, in Canada, and I'd say this is fairly consistent around the world, it really boils down to, as you've heard, what has been used first. But I think uh, many of our patients over time will have been exposed to VEGF, TKI, and immune checkpoint inhibitor. And in those scenarios, we would go to the so-called post-TKI options like cabozantib or other TKIs that might be approved or available in jurisdictions. Now, what we do clearly need to see, I think, are more options for patients who have pre-treated metastatic RCC. Dr. Soulier, we're on the heels of coming out of ESMO, some exciting data from LightSpark uh, 005. Perhaps you can take us through the importance of this drug and the data we saw recently. So, Bolsutifenin is as an if uh, uh, inhibitor, uh, so which is highly... Uh, solicited in the context of renal cancer. Um, this molecule, therefore, was uh, tested for patients who had failed prior immunotherapy and at least one VGFR agent. And that trial demonstrated that there was a reduction in the risk of progression that was very significant. It probably will help us redefine the treatment algorithm of patients who have failed for a first line of therapy. As we wrap up this uh, presentation, just to have a horizon scan as to what's coming in terms of advanced RCC trials and perhaps focusing a bit about those who have uh, immunotherapy embedded. So there are still trials trying to understand this triplet approach. So there's a phase three trial with the pembrolizumab and lenvatinib with belzutifan. There's the phase three trial uh, incorporating belzutifan and lenvatinib as a next line option against cabozantinib. And then there's other trials coming looking at immunotherapy agents, bispecifics, Stellar, 304, among others, are out there. You know, really, I think uh, this has hopefully been a very informative presentation for you, um, uh, but largely um, combination approaches, you know, are really the standard of care. And uh, part of the decisions will be on patient's profile, disease characteristics, and really optimizing through schedule and dosing alterations how to give our patients the most time on therapy with a good quality of life. And as mentioned, we'll talk about that more over time. So thank you really, uh, Dr. Soulier, for joining us and sharing your insights on this and to all of you. I hope you found this informative. Let's start with just a little refresher on the treatment options for RCC as we think through how we make selections and optimize patient care. Most guidelines, including the Canadian guidelines, tailor treatment options 
for these patients based on IMDC risk status. Doublet agents are largely approved and preferred for patients across risk groups. And one caveat being that ipilimumab and nivolumab as a dual immune checkpoint inhibitor is largely approved around the world and in Canada for intermediate and poor risk patients only. So we make a lot of decisions based on IMDC risk factors. Uh, what are these and where do they come from? Perhaps Dr. Sulia, you can take us through what these important risk factors mean. Risk factors should actually be there to help us try to find which patients should receive what type of therapy. And the IMDC actually looked at very basic clinical characteristics. And with this, they were able to establish a score, which tells us about those with favorable score, intermediate score, or poor score in terms of their prognosis. We need those factors because, in fact, we have very few, if actually no biomarker that we could base our judgment on to decide on, on therapy that is the best for patients when they present with metastatic disease. These are just some general buckets to consider, the so-called pros and cons of each of these options. From the pure immune checkpoint inhibitor, so essentially nivolumab plus ipilimumab, this is a life-prolonging option. There has been shown to be for patients who respond to very durable responses. There's this component of a possible treatment-free interval where patients can stop treatment largely from toxicity or perhaps voluntarily and enjoy a benefit off of treatment for some time. And perhaps in folks with sarcomatoid or rhabdoid features, this may be a beneficial option. In terms of the IOTKIs, uh, positives here again, life prolonging agents, really high and higher response rates than pure IO alone. Uh, this may mean that for patients with visceral crisis or risk of rapid progression, needing significant response, this may be a favored option. Certainly, there's a very long PFS, especially when we look at recent combinations up to two years. And there's multiple positive trials that have really shown this for the studied populations. What are the, some of the risks? Uh, doublet IO really does have an adverse event rate uh, from an immune perspective that needs to be well monitored and captured. For the IOTKI, at AE attribution does have some challenges to understanding the overlap or which is from each component. And there are some patients that do have some low-grade uh, toxicity from chronic TKI use, but we are thinking about how we evolve or escalate and de-escalate treatment along the way. But just to bring back the elements that we know about the TKIs that we're using and or have been tested now in combination with, uh, with immunotherapy, so cabozancinib, exocinib, and lumbacinib uh, have different characteristics. There are slight differences in terms of their safety, but the major difference is in terms of their half-life. So if you're dealing with a patient who has toxicities with exocinib, you know that by stopping the drug in a couple of days, you should know whether or not the toxicities are actually caused by the exitinib or by immunotherapy. Uh, because really in a couple of days, you're getting rid of all the medication that it has in blood. It's not as true for cabozancinib with a half-life that's almost 100 hours. You need quite a few days before you're able to make that decision as to whether or not the toxicities are truly caused by the TKI or caused by immunotherapy. And lenvastinib is actually in the middle uh, with a half-life of about uh, one day. But more than that, we can see that in terms of being able to select the right combination for a patient, uh, we probably have, first and foremost, to look at the IMDC criteria. But we'll also have to discuss when looking at IO, IO, or IOTKI, what are the objectives of the patient? So is their objective to make sure that there is control of their disease early on so that they can uh, enjoy at least some life, or do they want to go uh, all out and expect the longest survival possible, which is probably a bit more 
prevalent with the IOIO compared to IOTKI, but at the expense of having less control of the disease early on compared to the IOTKI combination. And so there are other important components as well. How symptomatic is the patient? What's the extent of disease burden to get a critical response up front? What is the patient's performance status and other comorbid conditions that may contribute to tolerability of treatment or uh, exposure to side effects? What is the provider experience? You know, our hope is that um, most providers will be able to be comfortable with IO or, or IOTKI regimens equally, but that may play a role. Dr. Soulier, we've had a lot of trials take us through metrics or surveys of assessing quality of life. Where do you think this is at and how do you talk to patients about that in clinic? Yeah, unfortunately, the data that we have is not that helpful because from trial to trial, we have differences in the way that the quality of life was assessed. So we cannot really say that we have comparable elements from trial to trial. But overall, we seem to see that uh, there is a, uh, probably more improvement early on in the quality of life based on the control of the disease early on with the IOTKI and probably more toxicity over time that is having an effect on quality of life in those patients. Whereas it's about the other way around for IOIO with more elements related to uh, quality of life linked to uh, adverse events or uh, less control of the disease and less of those events happening over time. So again, these are types of elements in terms of quality of life that probably need to be discussed with patients when trying to select the therapy. Yeah, I mean, again, there's um, some that we, I think, accept are largely immune-related. Uh, this is what we see and talk to patients about in terms of rash or puritis, pneumonitis, myocarditis, um, affecting the hormonal pathways with adrenal insufficiency or thyroid dysfunction. For VEGF-TKI, I think it's uh, you know accepted that hypertension, nausea, stomatitis, hand-foot syndrome or PPE and fatigue may be um, really uh, on-target effects. And then there's the overlap, you know, things like rash, diarrhea, hepatitis, and other hormonal or thyroid dysfunctions could overlap. So, you know, I think it really reinforces the need for a good assessment up front, early AE management and detection. And part of that is, again, um, bringing in this whole multidisciplinary management for these patients. So I'd like to invite um, Diane Clement to come in and talk to us about what this means. And knowing the, the uh, nuances of the different TKIs is really important and the half-life is really important. We have you know, patients who call in on a Friday afternoon uh, and they're on Exitinib and I tell them we're going to want you to stop for the weekend and restart on Monday if your side effects are going away, whereas, you know, a cabozantinib you know, that's not going to be a long enough period of time. As far as the uh, multidisciplinary collaboration at our center, we do have a psychosocial oncology team with a psychiatrist, psychologist, child life set specialists, social workers, and psychiatric nurses to help support patients and their families. We also have dietitians and drug access facilitators who are vital in assisting with symptoms and in accessing drugs in a timely fashion. As far as other physicians, it's important to have specialties like endocrinology, rheumatology, and hepatology who routinely see these patients and, uh, and have a good understanding of IO-related side effects. Integrating palliative care early on is important. At our center, we have a good palliative care team with an advanced practice nurse as well as two palliative care doctors. 
Diane, appreciate you sharing all the really untold story of we, we see great data, but how do we actually deliver this, make sure it's safe and effective for our patients and their families along their journey? Patients do tend to under-report or not uh, report side effects, and it is important to have uh, a good uh, assessment on either over the phone or in person. At our centre, the medical oncologist and primary care nurse work together as a team. We are assigned as oncology nurse case managers and follow the patients through their cancer journey. When a patient calls into the JCC with side effects or questions, the call is assigned to a pool of nurses that are trained in GU so that if the oncology nurse case manager is away, another GU nurse will take the call. Yeah, lots of good points there. It's a privilege to work in centers that, you know, um, with you, Diane, where we can have that kind of um, a relationship with the nursing and physician team to provide this uh, to our patient. That takes us to the end of this session. You know, I, I think um, we've heard from Dr. Soulier in this session and others, the advancements we've made, and I think really coming down to delivering that. Yes, I think you, you've really nailed the point about trying to be able to make the adequate treatment selection based on the whole knowledge of the patient, what their objectives are, uh, what are the expect, uh, expected uh, adverse events that can happen. Uh, so these are basic elements and having a whole team is really necessary to be able to do that for patients. I wanted to thank uh, Dr. Soulier uh, and uh, Diane Clement for their uh, expertise in the multi-D and allied healthcare setting. Um, thank you both for joining us. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.